We're continuing our studies in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a very easy book to find. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all the wisdom literature in your Bible is together. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and we're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to heal and a time time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, uh, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Amen. Now we come this morning to what probably is the best known but least understood portion of Ecclesiastes. It's known because of the popular song, Uh, that was based on these words uh, written by the folk singer Peter Zeger in the late 1950s. It was popularized by the American rock band The Birds, not B-I-R-D-S, but B-Y-R-D-S, and became a kind of peace anthem during the 60s. The song itself was almost taken verbatim from the authorized version's rendering of verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3, to everything, turn, turn, There is a season, turn, turn, and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, a time to weep. 
It's a, a beautiful song, and it has a beautiful tune. But to most people, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And if it does make a lot of sense, uh, it shows really that they haven't understood what's being said. I remember by way of introduction, we noticed that King Solomon uh, wrote this book and he's viewing life from two perspectives, from life under the sun. That's life lived without God, with no reference to God and certainly with no relationship to God. Solomon tells us that when you live your life under the sun, it's the road to nowhere or if it's the road to somewhere, it's the road to despair. But then every now and then he brings God in. And what a difference God makes. It's like uh, switching on the lights and everything becomes bright and beautiful. I remember when a color TV first arrived in our home in the mid-1970s. But they had only the back, uh, back catalogue of old black and white films. So you watch these black and white films on your color TV. Norman Wisdom, Abbott and Costello and so on. And I remember uh, for the first time watching the original film, The Secret Garden. It was remade in 2020, but it wasn't just quite the same as the 1949 edition. And the whole film was shot in black and white until you entered the secret garden. And then the secret garden was in full-blown, glorious technicolor. Life under the sun is black and white. It has no color. It is vanity, as we found out last week. It's a chasing after the wind. But when you bring God in, there is meaning, there is purpose, there is joy, there is satisfaction. I notice how the Hebrew poem begins in verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time, for every matter under heaven. Now that phrase, under heaven, sounds a lot like that other phrase, under the sun. He uses the word heaven rather than sun for a reason that we'll find out later. But in this poem, he is exploring life with God left out. Life under the sun or life under heaven. That's why it's misunderstood, I think. And that's why it's popular with people who don't even profess to be Christians. I was shocked to read that the most popular reading at a humanist funeral wasn't Voltaire or Nietzsche, not William Shakespeare or Seamus Heaney, not even Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, or Gloria Gaynor, uh, I will survive, both of which I've heard at funerals, but from the Bible, from here, from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And why would that be at a humanist funeral? Because it's life under the sun. It's life under heaven. It's life with God left out. I want you to notice three things this morning. First of all, the facts of life. The facts of life are contained in this, uh, the, the eight verses of this Hebrew poem. It doesn't rhyme for in Hebrew poetry. The poetry is in the idea rather than in the sound of the words. In 14 couplets from verses 2 to 8, Solomon covers the whole range of life from the cradle to the grave. In verse 2, we have those two great bookends. There is a time to be born and there is a time to die. And there's a lot that happens between those two points 
And Solomon wants us to think of all of that. He wants us to think about life between our birthday and our death day. The good times, the bad times, the laughter and the tears. It's all here in these verses. All of life is here. Profit and loss, the high points, the low points, war and peace, life's triumphs and life's tragedies, the ups and downs. It's all here from the cradle to the grave. This is your life. Now we need to understand what Solomon's purpose is here in presenting us with the facts of life. Is he simply trying to get us to live our life uh, more efficiently? Is he some kind of time and motion expert who wants us to understand the facts of life so that by understanding them, that we might live more efficiently as biological machines. Is that his purpose? Sometimes these verses are understood in that way, uh, as though they were an exercise in time management. But to understand these verses in that way is to misunderstand what Solomon is saying. From this beautiful Hebrew poem, Solomon wants us to understand certain things about our lives, about the facts of our lives, about the events that unfold in our lives. And I think there are three that he highlights. First one is that there is rhythm to the events of our lives. This is the world's most famous poem on time. And there is a rhythm to the poem that actually translates into English. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. And just as there is rhythm in the very structure of the poetry, so there is rhythm in our lives as it unfolds on time. There is rhythm, there is repetition, there are cycles, there is a completeness to our lives. There are not simply seasons in nature uh, that are cyclical, but there are seasons in life that are cyclical. There is a rhythmic pattern built into our lives. Look at verse 15. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has uh, been driven away. Have you ever had that feeling of deja vu? That you've been in that uh, this situation before, that you've said exactly the same words uh, 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 as you're presently saying. It can be quite unsettling. Psychologists tell us it's a trick of the mind, that there is a delay in receiving the information and processing the information so you think that you've been in that situation before. But sometimes, that feeling of having done this before is because you have done it before. Because life is cyclical and rhythmic. There are common events of uh, in our lives that keep coming up. And of course it's not just that there's this cycle in our own lives, but in the lives of everyone in history. These 14 couplets apply to us all in every generation. 3,000 years have come and gone since Solomon penned these words, but the things that concerned him concern us. The events that he encountered, we encountered. The experiences that he had, we have. So planting and reaping, breaking down, building up, mourning and dancing, love and hate, war and peace. These are exactly the same things that we face 3,000 years later. 
There is a rhythm, there is a cycle to life, individually and to everyone in history. So that's the first thing that he draws out from these facts of life. There is a rhythm to the events of our lives. Secondly, there are contradictions in the events of our lives. This poem is really a study in contrast. There is, to be sure, a definite pattern, a rhythm to life, but it is also true that life is contradictory. There's a time to be born. That lovely time when the proud new parents return home with that bundle of trouble and the relatives call and the cards arrive. It's a wonderful time. But just as surely the time will come when that child will die, be buried and mourned, and again the relatives will call, the cards will arrive, but this time it's altogether different. There, there is a time to be born and there is a time to die. And Solomon asks in verse 9, well, what's the point of it? What gain has the worker from his toil? What's the point of putting an effort into life if the good that you achieve is cancelled tomorrow? If I'm going to die tomorrow, why be born in the first place? If what I build up today will be torn down tomorrow, why bother? If, if I set my heart on something and seek it, with all of my heart, only to lose it, was the point of seeking it in the first place. So here's a talented surgeon, and he spends his whole career perfecting his skill, and at the peak of his career he has a stroke, or he develops Parkinson's, and his hands begin to tremble, and he can no longer operate, and his concentration is gone, and although it's a bit embarrassing, his colleagues have to approach him and force him to retire. Or here's an experienced teacher at the top of her career, a proficient and well-liked educator. And she's becoming a bit forgetful. She's overtaken by dementia. And she's reduced to drinking from a child's drinking cup in a hospital bed. Life's like that. It's full of contradictions. And Solomon is saying, if life is like that, If what I achieve today is cancelled tomorrow, what's the point of achieving it in the first place? Man's external actions and his internal emotions are all subject to change, and that change can often be contradictory. And that brings us then to our third fact of life. We have little control over the events of our lives. See, most of these things are out of our control. They're beyond our control. Did you ask to be born and come into the world? You weren't consulted in that. It had nothing to do with you. It had something to do with your parents, but it had nothing to do with you. Much as you would like to put off your appointment with death, you can't do that either. These things are outside your control. There is a time to plant and a time to pluck up. Does man control the seasons, the planting of the seed, the reaping of the harvest? No, he doesn't. The best that he can do is try and get into sync with nature, into sync with the seasons. Then, But even then, the crop can be destroyed by drought on the one hand or deluge on the other. Verse 4, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Most of the time, you don't have any choice Uh, about those two things, because it's the circumstances, it's the situation that you're in determines whether you're weeping or laughing. Those circumstances are out of your control. The world of big business, the market fluctuates. There are downward trends and there are upward trends, and the best that you can do if you're a businessman or a politician 
is to try and predict the way the market is going to move, but you can't control it, as Liz Trust found out uh, to her loss. Because there are forces at work that are too big for you. There are factors involved outside your control. And there are times to invest and there are times to sell. There are times of profit and there are times of loss. Verse 5, there is a time to gather and a time to scatter. Verse 3, there is a time to build up and a time to knock down. Verse 6, there's a time to keep and there's a time to cast away. And it's all out of your control. That's the point. On the international front, verse 8, there are times of war and times of peace. One nation goes to war against another. Uh, one generation fights and the next generation are the best of friends. Do you see what Solomon is saying? This is what life is like for us. There's a, there's a definite pattern and rhythm to life. But life is so contradictory and most of the events of our lives are out of our control. They're beyond our control. None of us are able to set the agenda or call the tune. Life is out of control and we're caught on this swinging pendulum of circumstances. These are the facts of life. There is rhythm to the events of life. There are contradictions in the events of our lives and we have little control over the events of our lives. Now most of us, if we have an ounce of intelligence, can identify with that. We realize that there is this rhythm and pattern to life, deja vu, that life is full of contradictions, and for most people, circumstances are beyond their control. That's what makes it uh, makes us different than the animals. We have the capacity to discern, to reason, to think, and to analyze these facts of life. Animals don't see them. They're not asking eternal questions. They're not wondering why one thing happens rather than the other, why one rabbit is caught in a snare and the other dies of old age. Now, why is that? What makes us different? How can we see the rhythm in life, the contradictions in life, the, the fact that life is beyond our control? How can we see that? How do we know that? How do we understand that? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 11. Now, if you're using the authorized version, unfortunately, the authorized version obscures the meaning of what Solomon is actually saying here. Look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now the authorized version says he has set the world in their heart. That's not right. That's wrong. He hasn't set the world in man's heart. He has set eternity in man's heart. Or as the New Living Translation says, he has planted eternity in the human heart. It's the same word that's used in verse 14. I perceive whatever God does endures forever. That's the same word. You're using the authorized version. Just don't think of the word world, but think of the world to come. There's something of the eternal Something of the spiritual about man that makes him think when it comes to the facts of life. Something in him that uh, enables him to re, uh, re analyze and, and recognize the patterns of, one, uh, of one's life. 
As one commentator says, God has endowed man with an awareness of the extra-temporal te- uh, significance of himself. That there's something in man that distinguishes him from the animals that tells him that he's different, that God has set eternity in his heart that enables him to see the rhythm of life. Now it's confusing because he says at the end of verse 11 he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. He knows that he's different. He sees the pattern of life but he can't make head nor tail of it. The Bible tells us that God created man in his image. That doesn't mean to say that you look like God because God is a spirit and God is invisible. But it does mean that you have a a spiritual uh, part of you, an eternal um, uh, dimension to you. When uh, we were children, we used to take the old pennies, the big old pennies, and I'm not recommending this, but we used to put them on the railway line, and we used to wait for the train to pass over them. And uh, as you looked at them, you got a flattened piece of copper, but as you looked at them, you could still discern the image of the queen. Nose was up here, her chin was down here, but you could still see the image distorted, but not deleted, ruined, but not removed. And because God has placed eternity in man's heart, he sees the facts of life, he, he, he's looking for a world to come. He sees that he was made for something different. C.S. Lewis puts it so well when he says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You were made for another world. And nothing less than God himself can satisfy that desire within you. And because of that, there is in this desire in each of us an attempt to explain the rhythms of life. So if that's so, if if man can see that life has rhythm, that life is often contradictory, and that life is beyond his control, how does he explain the significance of life? What conclusions does he come to when he seeks to evaluate his life? Well, there are two. There is fate or faith. Fate or faith. The um, despair of faith. Look at verses 18 at 21. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them and that they may see that they themselves are but beasts for whatever happens to the children of man and whatever happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So you you can just see life without God is, is hopeless. Those patterns of life just don't make any sense. But how do you explain them? Well, verse 19 says, For whatever happens to the children of man... 
And what happens to the beasts of the field is the same. And that word happens is the word for chance or accident or fortune in the original language. The NIV translates verse 19 like this. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. The authorized version uses the word befalleth. That it's all just an accident. That it all just happens. Yes, there is rhythm. Yes, things are out of our control and things are contradictory, but it's just the luck of the draw. It's all fate. So you explain misfortune by walking under a ladder, seeing a magpie. You consult the astrologer. You look for meaning or purpose in the stars, in the cards, or in the tea leaves. There was a musician called John Cage who believed in chance and he tried to put it into practice uh, in his life. And so he tried to compose his music uh, by the flick of a coin. Heads, he would put one note down. Tails, he would put another note down. He composed his music by the flick of a coin and he went out and killed himself. Because you can't live by that philosophy, that view of things that doesn't fit with the facts of life. Yes, there is rhythm. There is these contradictions. Things are out of control, but fate doesn't explain them. It leads to despair. Who knows if the spirit of an animal or a man goes down or up? Paul Simon said, Impaled on my wall, my eyes can dimly see the pattern of my life and the puzzle that is me. From the moment of my birth until the instant of my death, there are patterns I must follow, just as I must breathe each breath. Like a rat in a maze, the path before me lies, and the pattern never alters until the rat dies. The pattern still remains on the wall where darkness fell, and it's fitting that it should, for in darkness I must dwell. Like the color of my skin or the day I grew old, my life is made of patterns that can scarcely be controlled. Paul Simon recognized the pattern uh, of life, but he put it down to fate, like a rat in in the maze. That's the only explanation that he could come up with. There are these patterns, life is out of control, life is contradictory, but it's all down to blind, cold fate. I remember meeting somebody in hospital, and uh, they were very seriously ill, and uh, he said to me, I don't believe in chance. He says, there's a reason for everything. A reason for everything. I thought, not only was he a Christian, I thought he was a Calvinist. But he was neither. He was a fatalist. Like the soldiers who used to come out of the trenches in the First World War and said, well, if the bullet's got your name on it, it'll get you. That's faith. That this pattern is all marked out by cold, cruel fate. That you're no better than the animals. That your end is the same as the animals. What can be more uh, depressing, more uh, despairing than that kind of thinking? But there is another explanation to the uh, facts of life. And it's uh, the comfort that comes through faith. Life, says Solomon with God, uh, in the picture, is not a maze. It's amazing. Look at what he says again in verse 11. 
He has made everything beautiful in its time. Do you see that? He has made everything beautiful in its time. He rules out chance. He rules out fate. He brings God in. And do you see what he's saying? Imagine you're at an art gallery and uh, you're short-sighted and you're inching your way along a, a, a tapestry or a fresco of some sort and you're aware of the fact that there's something beautiful there, there's something of quality there, there's something that has design and pattern. But the great design escapes you because you can't get back far enough to take the whole picture in. You can't see the end from the beginning. And God has made everything beautiful in its time, says Solomon. It's not blind chance. It's not chaos. It's not meaningless. It's not cold, cruel fate. God is behind it. But you can't see it. There's design and there's purpose, but you can never step back far enough to take in the facts of your life and to see the reason for them. That's the trouble. God has put eternity into our hearts. We're not like the animals. Animals don't ask these eternal questions. They're not thinking about ultimate questions, meaning what's the meaning and purpose of life. But we can't step back far enough to see the beautiful design. That's what Solomon is saying. Back to verse 1. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. Yes, this is life under the sun, but he wants us to understand that life under the sun is life under God's control. It's under heaven. Phil Rankin says um, the verses in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8 are divine actions before they become human activities. That God is in control. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. God has done it. Let me change the illustration for a moment. Imagine yourself standing behind a tapestry and you see all the beautiful colors and the threads hanging down, but you don't see the picture. You can't see the, the, the tapestry. You know that there's a pattern there, but you can't distinguish it. That's the unconverted person. And then somebody comes round to you and they bring you to the other side of the tapestry and you see the whole picture That's the converted person. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 8? All things work together for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. That promise is for Christians. In all things, that means everything, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who love Jesus, who are in love with Jesus, who have been called according to his purpose, who have heard the gospel call, who have repented uh, of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. For them and them only, God is working 
all things together for good. For the lovers of God, everything that happens, happens for a reason, happens for a purpose. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God is doing something beautiful in your life if you're a Christian. He is making you more like the Lord Jesus because Romans 28 is followed by Romans 29 that he has has predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the good that he desires. That's the good that he wants and that's the good that he's working for. And all the ugly, trying circumstances of life are being weaved together in order to make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Solomon says for the Christian, for the person with God in their lives, he has made everything beautiful in its time. God, when you become a Christian, begins a work in your life and he continues that work as long as you live to make you more like Jesus. And every hardship, every obstacle, every stumbling block that you encounter in life is only a stepping stone towards that godliness that he might make you more holy. Solomon is telling us that it is God who rotates the wheel of our life. But it's not a wheel of fortune. It's a potter's wheel. And he is fashioning us into the people that he wants us to be. As that wheel revolves, and as you pass through the fingers of omnipotence, those hard bits in your life are being squeezed and pulled and kneaded until he fashions the vessel that he wants for himself. Joni Erickson was a young girl of 17. You remember who was paralyzed in a diving accident. She was reduced from a life of vigorous activity and independence to total helplessness and dependence as she became a quadriplegic. Is this my bad luck, she says? Is this some cruel fate? There are millions of questions, but only a couple of worthwhile answers. There are a lot of whys that I wonder about and don't understand. But I know who. I know who. And that's enough. The answer to life and to the questions of life is not fate, the luck of the draw. Leave God out and you have this doctrine of despair that that life is just miserable without him. The tyranny of time. But there is another explanation. Rather than the tyranny of time, there's the mystery of providence. That God is in everything working and molding you into the person that he wants you to be. Are you a rat in a maze? Subject just to the cards that life deals? Or do you believe that God is in control? And even when life is contradictory, and even when life is out of your control, that it's under his control, and that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything beautiful in its time. All things work together for good.
all things. That's wonderfully comprehensive. The bad things, the sinful things, the rebellious things, the difficult things. He's in it all. Working and weaving and turning that round for good that you might be more like.